When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm desperate for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunt me a desperate for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Today, we've got a really special guest. He is a dancer, a writer, a trainer, an entrepreneur. He does a lot of cool stuff. Welcome to the show, Alexander Juan Antonio Cortez. How you doing, man? <laughs> I'm good, brother. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good. Thanks, bro. How's your day going today? Where are you at right now? Pretty good. So, um, let's say I, I'm at home today. Um, this Venice Beach, California, where I live, I, I have a pretty leisurely life, so I'm I'm doing this from my bed, the way I, I do most things that I work. On. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> something like that, something like that. Awesome, man. So I've introduced you, but why don't you tell the people a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what it is that you do? Yeah, so that's a, that's always a good question that I never really quite know how to answer. Um, so story-wise, I guess if I start at the beginning, my original career plan was to be a ballet dancer. So I went to college for dance. My actual, my bachelor's of arts is in uh, dance performance and choreography. While I was in college, I got really badly injured where I tore a hamstring tendon and then I broke a foot uh, on my left leg. And that took me out of dancing for a long time. And as a, not really a, I don't, I don't want to say a fallback or a backup, but simply as just an alternative course of action, I got into personal training uh, just by way of having to rehabilitate myself and being interested in the body. And I already was, I was a guy that lifted weights, um, not necessarily correctly, but I was very into going to the gym. And I decided to go with fitness as a, something to do that would hopefully pay the bills. Mm -hmm. uh, since I realized, I really, I kind of had a red pill awakening halfway through college where I realized 
I was getting essentially what was like a fake liberal arts degree. And th this was before everyone, this is before society collectively started to realize that a lot of degrees were just uh, fundamentally worthless. Okay. What were you studying? So I, I was studying dance performance and choreography. Okay. Uh, this, this was in, I was in San Francisco State. And I went to school in 2007, started college, and then right around 2007, 2008, the Great Recession happened. So I saw my parents, uh, like, they end up short-selling you know, the house that we grew up in. I saw a lot of people, people I knew, that a lot of people I knew that lose their homes. That was very, very common. The county I lived in in California was, like, the hardest-hit county in the whole United States. One in four people actually, like, lost their house, had a foreclose, short sale, whatever. So I, everyone knew somebody that had gone through that situation. And it was it was very fascinating to me because I'd always I'd grown up not a, as a believer in the system per se, but I was I was always someone that questioned the narrative of how things were. And I saw all these adults that were going through this crisis, and no one had anticipated it. And it really called me. It made me question what is it that my parents believe about how the world works that they couldn't see this happening. Uh, and so society as a whole, the news I followed all seemed to be the same story of. This retrospective analysis of, oh, in hindsight, this is why that happened, but yet nobody knew that in the buildup to it. Uh, so I was in middle, I was in college at that time, then also also injuring myself to sort of cause me to question what my career was going to be, since I realized I wasn't going to be able to dance mm -hmm. uh, the way I wanted to. So you know, all of it coalesced at once, and, and fitness was just something to do, because I liked it, and I, I didn't plan on doing it as long as I have, uh, but I did realize that I love teaching, I enjoy teaching, so I stuck with personal training. Uh, really from 2009 up until now. So it's been essentially 10 years. Um, and through doing that, I, I lived in Hollywood. I tra I've trained, uh, quote-unquote, celebrity clients, uh, actor clients. I lived in India for six months training a Bollywood actor. Um, it's a good friend of mine now. Uh, I worked for – I got into writing professionally in 2013. And then I sort of started – got into the business of learning how marketing worked online, learning how persuasion worked, learning how – you know, learning what people respond to in regards to rhetoric and reason and uh, emotion. Again, this that, that experience in college, you know, watching the Great Recession happened, it always gave me this sort of very broad, you know, uh, perspective, trying to be as omniscient as possible as to how the world was going and mm -hmm. how things worked. And, and there are various experiences in college that I went through. Um, watch, I, things like watching a, a, a girl debate whether she should accuse her boyfriend of rape because he broke up with her. Uh, oh, wow. Things, this was 10 years ago, um, okay. wait, you know, 10 years ago, before, before Me Too ever happened. But I, I had experiences like that because San Francisco is a very liberal city, obviously, the most liberal in the United States. And I saw these levels of dysfunction that really made me question what people's beliefs were that led them to make those decisions or how those decisions were arrived at in the first place. Uh, I, remember, I remember that being 18, this girl, she was you know, sort of like, she lived in the dorm I was in. We had a sort of co-ed mixed dorm. And she was like legitimately debating whether to report this guy for like rape, sexual assault because she was mad at him. Um, and like, it was, just, it was disturbing. That is very disturbing. It's one of those things that, you know, I think if you're a quote unquote red pill guy, you're aware of that. It's something that can potentially happen, but I yeah. think, yeah, to, to see it happen that blatantly, you know what I mean? It's, it's mm -hmm. so callous and I don't even know the word for that. It's just, it's just evil. <laughs> that that's just it's so yeah, it was evil and, and there was also like a level of like sort of malicious ignorance to it where she really didn't see anything wrong with it until sort of her friends and other people at the time like we convinced her like no that's like what don't do that why would you do that yeah so which sort of peer pressured her into not doing it which again is just, just strange when you think about it now 
Um, but yeah, I just I had so many instances instances like that over the course of like going through college that really made me question everything I believed and have been brought up with about the world. So I, I was raised fairly blue, Democrat. I was never really politically. You have a set of beliefs. You have a paradigm that you grew up in, and you, you don't really question that so much. Yeah. Uh, and then then over ten years of just meeting different people and seeing so much of the world and seeing people who are free of the system, so to speak. Uh, it sort of it's led me down this path of wanting to be, you know, what some people would call now sort of like a sovereign individual. I mean, I pay taxes. I don't mean sovereign where I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean sovereign where I'm rejecting that you have to pay taxes. I, I mean, in the sense where a sovereign individual where I want to be someone where I was anti-fragile, quote unquote, I worked for myself. Um, I was not constrained by the normal uh, parameters and the boundaries of propriety that regular people have to endure at work within the public environment, the working environment. And that just that, you know, today led me to this place where I built a brand online around myself. What I, th what I think I've learned to this point, trying to provide value to people. Yeah, a lot of that is fit fitness oriented. Um, and then a lot of it's just sort of my personal experiences and philosophies. So, I mean, that's my story in, a, in so many words. I, I turned 30 this year. So that will be a, an interesting milestone to cap off my 20s finally. I remember because I followed you on Twitter for a while. And I was actually quite surprised and shocked to realize that you were in your 20s to begin with, because mm -hmm. both in your appearance and the way you carry yourself and the way you talk, you do come across as someone who is older. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 my, my joke has been I've looked 30 since I was about 20. OK. Uh, <laughs> I, I was just I was always one of those kids from what, even at a very young age where I was always sort of preternaturally had a seriosity, my personality, like uh, this very serious um, and then because I was taller too, I was a very tall kid and like I, I capped out at six, two, so I didn't end up being six ten. you know, the way my, my parents thought it might be, but I was a really tall kid when you're taller, you look older. Um, and then when people think you're older, you, there's a sort of expectation that you want to act older. Uh, so I always tried to try to be more mature, I guess, okay. than my peer group. Um, and then you, when I, right out of high school, I, uh, my sort of my, the culminating moment going from adolescence to adulthood was I was, a uh, I was working at a Ross department store when I was 18, and uh, this isn't a cult. Like my, this is my only job, my only actual job I've ever had is besides personal training. And I, I was a total kleptomaniac when I was like a teenager. Um, <laughs> no, I absolutely was, absolutely was. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not proud to say that. But I was just, it was sort of like my rebellion against the system in a way. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I was, I was, an, I was somewhat antisocial. I didn't want to. I guess you'd say sort of like be like a rat race nine to five or so I started stealing stuff comes for the fun of it. And then when I was working at this Ross department store, I was stealing merchandise, you know, the pawn and that went on for a few months. And then I got pinched, so to speak, I got caught and then I gave myself up. I had sort of this karmic crisis moment where I realized like what I was doing had sort of come down upon me. Mm -hmm. I'm not I was paying a cost for my actions. So I did two months in a County lockup. That, that was the summer of 2008 at McGuire County Correctional. And that was you know, another, I don't want to call it a red pill moment, but a sort of awakening because I saw men who had lived their whole lives as sort of petty criminals, thieves, or you know, sometimes serious criminals. Um, and they were very, very sad guys. They were sad men. It's broken people, largely. The vast majority of men in prison, I realized, it made, it made me very sympathetic to prisoners um, and certain social issues, but the majority of men in prison, I realized they didn't really have great fathers growing up or no dad at all. Mm -hmm. uh, they lacked like a support family structure and they were just, they were very much screwed from the beginning, a lot of them and not to absolve them of their guilt, but you realize that the social environment people grew up in, the role models they have, 
that absolutely influences the destiny of your life. You can't dismiss that at all. No, uh, no so question. I mean, that, that touches on a big, a big thing. Cause I'm one of those people who, um, I'm very interested in politics at one level and mm -hmm. very uninterested in politics at another level. So yeah. I'm interested at, at a very high level. So a lot of the conversations I've been having with people, you know, lots of successful people, lots of entrepreneurs is so much stuff always comes down to this idea of personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, one interesting thing I've noticed online particularly is if you advise people on how to improve themselves or you preach any form of personal responsibility, whether that's fitness, whether that's financial, whether that's nutritional, whether that's appearance, it doesn't matter what it is, you will face criticism, right? There's always going to be a backlash. If you say, if you jump on Twitter and you say, okay, um, this is how you cannot be fat, boom, 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 and you just list like really basic points, okay? You're mm -hmm. going to get someone, someone's going to turn, someone's going to get angry, someone's going to show up, someone, you know, a little mob is going to come. If you say, okay, look, this is how you cannot be broke or this is how you can, um, start a business or how you can do this. You can have people coming in. Oh, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or you're, you're being mean to this person or you're not being sympathetic. And I think that's, you see that reflected in the larger political spectrum because you essentially got people, you know, preaching this idea, which I think is, is the best idea of personal responsibility and accountability. It's not to say that everybody gets an, an even start. Of course not. It's not to no. say that some people don't grow up in bad environments. Of course they do. But that doesn't then, you know, like that, that point you were just making, it's like, yeah, someone growing up in a bad environment may be more likely statistically, in fact, is to mm -hmm. do certain things or behave in a certain way. You still have to hold that individual accountable. They can't just be like, oh, well, I didn't have my dad going around, so I became a rapist and a murderer. It's like, nah, bro. Like, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like, no, nah, you know, oh, I didn't, I didn't have this. So I had, I had to sell crack. I'm like, did you have to, like, was there? Was there another option? Like, you know, was everyone doing like it's there's like a kernel of a little bit of truth to it, but at the same time, you gotta be kind of like, well, you know, we're all individuals. If you do something that is against the law, or you commit a crime, you harm someone or something, then that's on you. You can't just blame the circumstances all the time. So you've got people who want to blame absolutely everything, everything on the system or on society. Changing the system or changing society is a lot harder than changing yourself at the end of the day. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's a, it's a, that's a futile battle. Uh, <laughs> something I, I realized this as I got older, that there's always a thing. You, you, you realize this. You realize this. People love to blame something else. And there's a theory um, by a French philosopher, René Girard, called mimetic theory. But one, one of the central components of it is what he calls a scapegoat mechanism, mm -hmm. which I've talked about in my email list. Um, yeah, a little bit on Twitter, but scapegoating basically meaning that there's this human instinct that to handle our reality and to maintain our sense of reality, anything that causes dissonance or causes us to sort of question ourselves, we just blame it on something else. We, we scapegoat it. Mm -hmm. So we just make, we make everything not our fault. And, and you see that play out on the personal level with people where they don't want to take accountability for their actions. And you see that play out on the meta level where every problem can be blamed upon either a group, a movement, you know, the, the system, you know, whatever that is supposed to mean. You can, you can always blame it on something where it puts you in a position of being a victim of it and puts the thing that you're blaming in the position of power. And if you can only stop that thing, remove that thing, uh, take that thing out of its position, then that would fix the issue. Uh, and, yeah, that's, and that's something where 
is there a sense of truth to it at times? Yeah, there are times when people are absolutely victimized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've bring this out at times with like what I call like predatory capitalism. You know, are there ways that people are exploited? Exploited? One hundred percent, absolutely. Um, you know, the the any any system that is prioritized around the motivation for profit and sleep profit, it will do so at the expense of human misery. That will happen. That like mm-hmm. that will happen. Um, and that's important to acknowledge that. Yeah. At the, at the same time, however, you know, at the same time, you cannot put yourself within that internal victim position because you end up being powerless to do anything at all, whether it's for yourself or someone else, you know, or the system. People will do everything to defend why nothing can be done, you know, or why nothing, why they can do nothing on their part to change with their the position they're in. So what you're saying is that the white male dominance hierarchy and patriarchy is not responsible for all the world ills something like that okay <laughs> i was told like I, I was told it was so i'm not sure who to believe you know well, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> no i, I mean it's because i i come from i come from a very mixed race family i do and i did not grow up with a conceptualization of what race was the, mo- the way most people do because everyone i grew up with is a different color from myself so up until I was in middle school, it didn't really occur to me that people racially segregated themselves as an identity. I did not know that. I, I, I'm the same, bro. I mean, I, I grew up in a very, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. In mm-hmm. an, in, I went to an international school. I lived in a place where there were people from America, Arab, all the Arab countries, Canada, UK, South America, literally everywhere from, from preschool all the way. That's why I find the current times that we live in, especially sort of the last sort of three to five years where people have fallen back, like people have kind of moved back, in my mm-hmm. opinion, you know, into this weird I- identity, politics, whatever you want to call it, kind of self-segregation almost. It's like you got rid of like actual segregation and now mm-hmm. people are kind of starting to self-segregate again and start to look at people through this weird racial or gender or whatever mm-hmm. lens and start judging people by the color of their skin and judging people by their race and all it, it's so it's all very bizarre to me i'm kind of like what's what's this going on here you know like when i was a kid when i was growing up even in even in university you know i, I finished university about 10 years ago but even in university i was like this wasn't a this wasn't a thing like people were people weren't talking like this even some of the words and phrases people use i was like i, I didn't hear some i hadn't i'd never heard the term white privilege until about four years ago like i'd never heard it I'd never heard it. And then suddenly it's like, it's everywhere. You know what I mean? I'd never heard the term 10 years ago. I'd never heard the term people of color. I'd never heard the term patriarchy used in the sense that it's used now. Like I'd never even heard these terms. And I was, I was in university, you know, and I'm kind of like, what's the, what's going on here? Like, why, why is this being pushed? Because as far as I'm concerned, it's purely destructive. Like, I think it's just a purely destructive force, which is why I, I'm quite outspoken against it. Cause I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't see any benefit to this you're making people you're making people feel like victims you're making other people feel like oppressors you're blaming people for things they haven't done and no one has taken any kind of responsibility here you're just absolving people of just going oh you know oh you're in that situation oh don't worry that's not that's not you that's uh oh you're fat oh that's because the the corporations are evil and they put corn syrup and stuff and they they want you to be fat and they you know sue mcdonald's because you're you know, it's, it's like no one is pinning someone down and force feeding <laughs> force feeding them mcdonald's as far as i'm aware you know or like i don't live in the usa but people talk people talk very much the same way in the uk which is interesting because the uk has quite a different history okay so most the i don't know most of the black people 
for example, or the minority people in the UK are immigrants or descendants of immigrants. So it's not like there's the history of slavery and stuff like that. But even here in the UK, you've got certain people who have this idea that the whole system is set up to be against women or to be against minority people or whatever. And sometimes I feel like I'm living in some some parallel universe or something because I'm just like, are, you, are we talking about are we talking about and living in the same country here? Like I've traveled all over this country with my music, you know, doing shows, promoting. It's like I've been I've met hundreds of thousands of people, quite literally. And I can quite confidently say that there is not a lot of racism in the UK. If it is, they're hiding it so well that it may as well not exist. Yeah, you get the odd idiot here and there like you do everywhere. Yeah. But like the idea that the whole system is like rigged against women or rigged against black people. I'm just like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, I'm just, it's, it's weird to me because I, I just, I get, I get lost. And I think when people start to believe in it too much, I just think it's so disempowering. Like we're, I think we're both interested in empowering people. And I just think it's the opposite. It's very much a, like, a, it's a Marxist sort of like Joseph Goebbels playbook where, yeah, I've realized this and you know, Scott Abs talked about this as well. But human beings, when you gaslight them into seeing something that isn't there um, and you perpetuate this image to them that every incident in which someone hesitated to every, every incident from when someone was they thought was overly friendly from when they got cut off in traffic from when just any interaction, you put this idea in their mind that everything's weaponized and that the person they're looking at has ulterior ulterior motives for them. It, it shades their whole view of the world. Um, it becomes very, it's, it's very almost like a form of psychosis. It is. Mm -hmm. It's been like the term in the United States, for like the Trump derangement syndrome. It's real. It is. And like, I, I just watched my buddy Mike Sandwich's uh, documentary hoax, yeah, which is so excellent. But they're, they're pointing out, I, and I have a lot of criticisms I can say about Trump, but they're, the, the documentary pointed out quite rightly that every word he's ever said is taken not just out of context, but it's basically, there's things he, it's, it's fabrications largely. You know, so many statements have been made about him where like it has been fabricated. Yeah, and I've seen that now with people, even even family members I know that I have, they're very social justice warrior minded, where any contradiction to them, where you even argue with them, it's not that you're arguing with them, it's that you are perpetuating uh, patriarchy, it's that you are, uh, it's, it's misogyny, it's, you know, it's something where you are, you have this sort of this shadow force behind you of evil that you're pressing down upon them. So it's not just a disagreement, it's not just a disagreement of belief or even a disagreement of, you know, maybe what you could call like opinion. It's a disagreement between good and evil. Mm. And so you put people in this pitched battle. And when you, when you do that to people, there is no dialogue that can be had. There's no room for discourse. These people don't want to talk to evil people. Yeah. You know, especially when you morally justify somebody's hatred for something. Um, and I mean, I've seen that play out so, so, so hard. And it, it, it is strange to me because I remember growing up in the 1990s and, and I would never, I've never pretend the United States doesn't have elements of racism to it because it does there, there are certain things sure. you might take yeah, sure. but yeah, at the same time the united states has a very high standard of living and compared to countries i've traveled where there's immense classism and yeah and, and this i don't i don't believe in racism anymore on a certain level i don't i, I just i don't but what i what i've seen traveling is that you any, anywhere you go in the world people will always create a hierarchy to themselves and there will always be someone that gets turned into the out group mm -hmm. that always happens and people people always want someone where they can again scapegoat and blame problems upon and treat poorly and be able to each other people are always going to be divisionary yeah yes you know, so no matter where you go to you can find somebody you know whether whether i've been in india whether i've been in mexico etc i've seen people where they get horribly treated 
Is it because of their race per se? No, it's, it's not race. It's just the race is the, ra- the racism is just a reason to treat people badly. These people mm-hmm. like being malicious to each other. That's that's true. That's true. Yeah. It's just uh, one manifestation of tribalism. Yeah. You can you can go to you can go to a country where everyone is the same inverted commas race, mm-hmm. but then they'll have like a caste system or they'll have tribes. And you know, I, I'm originally from Nigeria, and mm-hmm. so you've got you know you've got different tribes. And then yeah. even within those tribes, not not as much now, but historically, you had more of like a clear sort of caste or class system where, OK, if you're if you're in this segment, you can't marry out mm-hmm. of this segment or, you know, all these kind of things. And it's just bizarre. It's like people are always going to find something to get tribal about. I think that's, you know, in our DNA. So, I mean, I guess the whole idea of a nation or a community is to make the make the tent as big as possible. So that, you know, you've got all these different people. So the, I think, the, yeah, the best idea is, okay, like we're a state, we're California or we're the whole USA. So you've got these 350 million people or whatever, and they're all different, different colors, different whatever from different places. But hopefully the one thing everyone can agree on is like, okay, we're all Americans. We're all going to yeah. treat each other as people with value and we're not going to shout and scream and beat each other over the head with bricks and shoot each other, hopefully, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I watch from a distance, but I do think it's interesting to see, yeah, just what's going on in the States. I'm sure some of it gets amplified online, and I'm sure when you go outside and stuff, things are mostly normal. But mm-hmm. I think it's just interesting to see, you know, you get you get the sort of early warning signs. You know, I think being online, being on Twitter, it's a bit of an early warning system because you see certain things on yep. there, and you're kind of like, wait, hang on, what's uh, what's going on here? Yeah, I think it's Twitter is somewhat of almost like canary in the coal mine social network because you get to you see people inter you see people express themselves almost from a level of super ego where how how they feel taken to the extreme, mm-hmm. uh, and then you see you do see that plant in the United States, yet maybe not in the form of like conflict all over the place, but in the way that like the political decisions get made and the way that policy gets set, you see that in this people's attitudes towards is to furring issues, uh, and and you can see on Twitter. And then seeing the real world, how a society sort of almost gets programmed at large. Mm-hmm. It's not any one incident. It's not any one key thing, but it's just a series of it's a, it's a series of languages. It's a, it's, it's, a ser- it's a series of language. It's a series of verbiage. It's a series of presentation within the media where over time your opinion shifts and you don't realize it. Uh, I mean, I th- you know, for absolving people of tribalism, you can never fully do that. Mm-hmm. Yet what you can do is have people hopefully assess each other on character and merit, you know, things that are, you know, essentially like sort of, you'd say, ethnically neutral. Yeah. You know, are you a good character and how you treat others? Are you respectful? You know, are you of merit? You can hope for that and you can create a system around that, which, you know, essentially the United States is based upon that idea. Mm. Uh, and people will always default to identity because it's easy to do. Yeah. It's really, really easy to do. Uh, you know, but then you, you invite your own destruction doing that because the people, the people that created society you know, who, you know, came before you that were your predecessors trying to tear down what they built and deconstructed is not going to make life better for you. No. You know, like I, I saw this in India, like when I lived there for, you know, six months where, yeah, did the British exploit India? Oh, absolutely. They did. You know, like they definitely did. Did they give India, certain, did they give India, certain, India certain advancements they would not have had otherwise? Yeah, they did. So, I mean, that, that's a mixed history. And mm-hmm. it is like, you're never going to get, it's not like one side's more right than the other per se. But you have to acknowledge that you know, history is not a, 
unfolding of good e- good people and bad people, good and evil. History is winners and losers. There are a thousand tribes that you'll never hear of because they've been extinct, and what they did was gone. So you know, to, to assign yourself the sort of end of history position where you are the most good, it, that's just delusion. Yeah, that's true. I also think there's just that danger of people uh, wanting to throw away, kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people are like, okay, this particular system has a certain flaw or this thing went bad in history. So therefore we need to just flip the entire monopoly board, right? So when you get people who want to, you know, you get these people who are very vocal critic critics of capitalism, okay? Mm-hmm. And which is like, okay, you, you can criticize capitalism, but it's always like, what other system are you proposing here, right? And can you tell me where it has worked without mass destruction and starvation and death? And obviously people are like, no, but it's like, okay, you know, every system, every system has flaws. You know, people want to criticize everything. People want to criticize that. People want to criticize religion. People want to criticize this. And it's like, yeah, you know, has, have bad things been done in the name of religion? Absolutely. No question. Like, it doesn't matter what the religion is. Has a lot of good <laughs> come from Christianity in terms of from religion, in terms of our, our values and our morality and even our laws? Like, I mean, the entire legal system is based on the idea that human beings have inherent value and essentially are made in the image of God, right? If you if you remove that principle, like every single law pretty much that forbids you from harming other people, kind of falls by the wayside because it all runs under the assumption that your fellow your fellow human being has has a value and you can't just enslave them or or beat them up or or kill them or whatever just at your own whim or just go and take they've got something you want and you just go and take it it's like no that's you know it's all based on that idea whether or not people are whether or not people follow the whole thing but it's like you know the root is important and it feels like people again people want to kind of pull the whole tree out and rip out the roots and again i'm kind of like what what do you want to replace it with Mm -hmm. and people often don't have an answer and it's like oh well we can do this and that and it's like well maybe you can for a while I'm personally skeptical of how long a tree will live without its roots, you know, because people will move so far. And, you know, you're seeing this in manifesting in different ways. I know I follow you on Twitter. I saw just before we did this thing, I saw you tweeted something about abortion, mm-hmm. for example. OK, so I, I, I take it you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty strongly pro-life, as am I. And my position is very straightforward about human life. You know, I, I, don't need to, I don't need to bring my Bible out and cite anything. It's just like. This, this thing is a human life, like the, the notion that you're going to, you know, you've got people advocating for like, <laughs> I don't know, like literally like the, the day, the day, you know, nine yeah, months, nine months in, yeah, nine months in. Yeah. You, and, I'm, and I'm just like my brain, like just kind of like, I, I feel like I can understand most. I try to understand most perspectives and empathize with different positions, but with certain things, I'm just like. That's like satanic. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm like, I'm like, yeah. like, I'm not trying to get into the good and evil thing here myself, but I'm just like, that is what's possessed you to think that, you know, you've got people saying, oh yeah, like even after the baby's born, yeah, you can still, the mother doesn't want it. Like, you know, she should still have the right to, I'm like, what? You know what I mean? I'm, I'm just like, I'm just like, what did you just say? Like, like we, we're not, we're not going to, we're not, I'm just like, we're not going to agree on this one. <laughs> like, we're going to get along. I mean, yeah. Well, you know, this is funny. I, I was not, I didn't start off as like pro-life, like the way I was raised. My parents, never, we, I didn't grow up being, let's say, pro-choice. It was just more like a default, like, oh, if you're, you think you're sort of Democrat-ish, like you're pro-choice because, yeah, women should be able to control their bodies. The thing that became disturbing to me as I got older, again, to sort of being called was, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily anti-pro-choice in the idea of like, should you be able to terminate a pregnancy early? 
uh, okay, okay. But I realized that there, there was this moral relativism that has been applied to what is good and what is evil. There was this incoherence I saw within liberalism where, you know, having grown up very democratic, just, you know, um, because my parents, there's this sort of this constant assumption that people that were conservative were sort of like stupid, bad people. Okay. It was, it was a very morally judgmental choice, I realized. So I'm like, you're making a moral judgment about one group. Okay, like you're, you're doing that. You're making a moral judgment about one group in mass with no real consideration given to their own beliefs, opinions, whether they're individuals. It's just Republicans, conservatives, bad, evil, stupid, <laughs> you know, white inbreds. I'm like, that's, that's really judgmental. Uh, and, and then yeah, at the same time, you're going to proposition yourselves as being all about sort of like the, the progressive group that is for human beings, for human rights, for people. But then you're going to put forth this policy in which uh, a child or a fetus, we're going to call it this growing inside woman, that has no value until it's born. Like that, that's an odd thing to me. Those things, it's just very inherent logic. It, 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 do, it doesn't even scientifically make any sense. Like people want to say that religious people or whatever or conservative people are, are anti-science. And I'm like, look, from a purely scientific biological perspective, so many of these arguments, I'm like, what you're saying doesn't even, like I'm just like, this doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't like, uh, it, it's it's such a weird one. It's so weird. So it was that. Then it was stuff like it was stuff like the environmental positions. Like um, so so like it's a very like common thing. Like if you're progressive left, like oh, it's all about your know, environment. You care about the environment. And the, uh, then I again I was like I was younger. But I was thinking this, Michael. Because I knew people that were like very activist minded. Then I'm like you're like one week you're protesting about protecting like a grove of trees. The next week you're protesting that you want to be able to get an abortion. <laughs> I'm like, how are how are trees more important than like a potential human? I'm like, again, just like that doesn't yeah. make didn't make sense to me. And, yeah. yeah, and then then the thing too that really changed my mind. Honestly, I was reading a lot of sort of like the sort of Catholic literature, um, going back to like the early 1900s. Okay, uh, and right around like when like sort of the 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 pale went into effect and what some of the popes wrote. And I realized that you do have to take a stand as a human being that there are moral positions in which there is something that is good and something that is evil. And that when you assign people this right that you can terminate a life that is growing at any given point, you know, up until you know, basically the day of birth or apparently even after that, and that you are morally fine for doing so, you're making good and evil, you're making right and wrong relativistic. Mm-hmm. You're, making, you're making it relativistic and you're moving the criteria for how people can define their choices. But then you're also removing the foundations for how we live our life and how we treat each other. Yeah. And that has massive, massive, massive first, second, third order implications uh, where you basically just deconstruct human beings' ability to get along with each other and value each other, period. It's the, I find it really weird that um, how strong a partisan issue that is, I think, is quite, it's quite bizarre to me because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't strike me as something that obviously should be. Do you know what I mean? Um, I think in the UK, it's a little bit different. But yeah, in the states there, it seems to be like a pretty a pretty hard line, Democrat Republican issue, it, 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 and it, it very much is. You know, it, I find I'd struggle again. I'm not American, but I would struggle to view the side that is advocating to extend the limit for abortions up to nine months, mm-hmm. right? I, like once once they kind of take that position, I'm like anything else you kind of say to me now. I'm I'm like raising my eyebrows at you like, wait, you're the good guy? And then, uh, you know, the whole idea of the whole 
me, 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 you know, the solipsism of it all, like the selfishness of just my, my body, my, my, and it's, and I'm like, is any part of you not capable of thinking outside of just your own convenience and what's, what's practical for you? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. people aren't even thinking about what's actually going on here. Like, I don't know how you can properly think about it. And at least not like, even if someone is still like, okay, I think it should still be, um, a legal option or people should have that choice or whatever, even if that's what someone concludes, the idea that it's like some flippant blue check Democrats on Twitter, literally like tweeting about like their abortions and stuff. And just like, it's so, the, the fli it's so flippant. And I'm just like, these are the same people that claim to be, again, it's just, it's just so logically, it's not even to say logically in here, it's just an incoherent period. But like you just said, you, you can have women where they're shouting their abortions and they're proud of the fact that they murdered their unborn child, but then in the same breath, they'll also claim that they care so much about uh, black lives and they care so much about immigrants and, and and think of the children that Trump separated at the border. I'm like, I'm like you, you said yesterday that you went and nuked your kid, like in the womb, or you know, like you know, that, yeah, your fetus is dead, and you don't care because it's your body, your choice. Uh, and th but then you're going to express to me that you are a martyr for marginalized groups, really. And let's not act like a huge number of those abortions aren't specifically happening to black children, right? I'm like, if black lives, I'm like, if black lives matter, the first things that need to be addressed are stopping terminating so many in the freaking womb. And number two, all the young black men who are terminating the lives of other young black men, you know, they're, 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 there's police brutality, there's cops, there's bad cops. Of course that exists. But in terms of like media coverage and outrage, you would think that there were way more black people in America getting killed by cops than killing each other, right? Mm -hmm. People don't like to talk about this because, you know, it's, it strikes a nerve with people. But oh, yeah. I'm kind of like, I'm like, look at the numbers. Just I'm like, look at the numbers. Like, even if you stopped every single bad police shooting, you've still got like a, a freaking huge problem here. Do you know what I mean? So I'm like, okay, Black Lives Matter. Cool. I'm like, yeah, I, I agree with you. Everybody agrees with you. but why is all the outrage, you know, on a single incident that may happen once or twice a year versus the ones that are happening like literally daily? And in, in some cities, it's just, you know, Chicago is the obvious one people always go to, but it looks like, you know, Chicago, Baltimore, Milwaukee. And it's just like, yo, like, why isn't, why aren't people, why isn't this not causing outrage? Like, I, I don't, again, I'm an outsider, so maybe I view it more rationally, but I'm just right. like, why aren't people shouting about this like i don't get it it's it's very counter narrative i that, that i mean that's something that's just very sick and overlooked that i'm, I'm not black obviously i'm i'm, a, I'm gonna take the, the the white privilege card i i have, I have black family members um but the, the fundamental issue that i've seen that exists that I'll, I'll stake myself on is that you have a situation that with the black community in the united states which has been historically marginalized mm -hmm. they were Given welfare in the 1960s, which was good in some cases and bad in, you know, in other cases, and they were it, it, they created the, 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 the certain aspects of the Civil Rights Act, especially the entitlement programs, it created an incentivized underclass of people where did it take some people out of poverty? Yes, but then it also created a situation, you know, especially within like the ghetto situation, where you had people where they were able to live off a system. And you also have a situation where the police force at that time was extremely racist and still is in certain areas to this day. So then you have what amounts to an oppressed population that you subsidize, essentially,
but then you don't allow them to advance, then you also incentivize them to keep supporting certain policies that keep them in a position of being mm. marginalized. And then you also have the very real situation of the war on drugs, which put took a lot of you know, black men out of the homes, incarcerated a lot of people. You have this incarceration problem in the United States period. Yeah. And you have a lot of black families that get broken up or just have never been together, period. You have guy, you have young black men that grow up without fathers. You have young black women that grow up without fathers. Um, you, you have people, they, they don't grow up with a cohesive family structure. So their community is, is it crime ridden? Yeah, it is. Do they have to do police brutality? Yeah, they do. But then they also have a subsidized way of living, which they need on a certain level. So you can't take that away from them because they, they need it because that's what's keeping them going. So you end up with this, this, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what you call it. It's sort of this, you know, charnel house where you've been exploited, marginalized, oppressed, and, you know, imprinted upon with a victim mindset. Mm. And then your leaders, both Democrat and Republican, really don't care about improving the situation because it's a difficult, intractable situation that doesn't have a clear set of solutions. Is you have to admit there's been error on both sides. Like, what do you end up with? That's true. If you look at the cohesiveness of black families over the last 40 years, it's, it's declined. You know, the number of two-parent households has declined. Mm. You know, the average you know, black family in America has essentially zero dollars in savings. Financial, Ill financial illiteracy is extremely, extremely high. Mm. It is. Yeah, the, the, the Black Lives Matter founder, Mr. Hawk, I, I got immense respect for the guy. And I don't agree with all his positions, but he makes a very good point. Where he's like, we live in a system that essentially on both sides just doesn't, give a sh doesn't care about us. Yeah. They don't care about us. And you know, what would I call that white supremacy? I wouldn't call it white supremacy. Is it you know, oppression in a certain sense? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, you know, has the United States done a good job of solving that problem? No, it, it hasn't. Mm. Yeah, I, I've seen this now enough for years. And you know, despite going from Demo sort of Democrat to Republican, I, I'm still disgusted by the leadership in both parties this day, especially with the Republican Party. Because you know, on a certain level, is it a party of old white men? They're very entrenched in their positions, and they have they've you know they're out of touch with the reality at large. Mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, definitely, definitely, definitely. The way that a society treats its sort of like worst off citizens reflect is reflective of the state of society as a whole. The fact that the United States cannot really solve that problem for itself, self meaningfully in the last yeah you know, however many you know 150 years, yeah, that that's an issue, and that will remain an issue for a long time. Yeah, no, it's it's a very complicated one, and it's exacerbated by the fact that people people are getting entrenched, and people are viewing the other side inverted commas as evil, mm -hmm. and people aren't just having a dialogue, and people like really simplistic simplistic things to blame the problem on, shall we say? So mm -hmm. people don't like to look at the stuff with nuance and look at look in detail and see, okay, like what's what's really going on here? So you've got the you've got some people who just think. The police are the problem. It's the police. Like the police are just, you know, driving around and killing people. And, you know, it's, are there police problems? Sure. Is this the root cause? Is this the core component? If we fix that thing, you know, or even racism, right? If you fixed individual racism in society, like if you just eliminated racism somehow, you just purged it from everybody's hearts. Do some of these problems still exist? Yeah, most of them still <laughs> exist. Like boys are still growing up without fathers. The rate of single motherhood is still very high. You've still got um, drug alcohol consumption at a certain rate, morals and values and the value of human life not being respected and treated seriously. So you see, it's like you, you still have all these issues and some of them are sure. Some things are ex external. Some things might be structural in a way. And if those can be identified, that can be improved. But um, ultimately, some things are also cultural and individual.
Yeah. So, you know, again, it comes back to that personal responsibility point of like, look, at the end of the day, you know, you've got to, people don't like hearing this, but ultimately it's like, look, wherever you are, wherever you come from, no one is saying that everything is easy or whatever. But if you're born in the USA, if you're born in the UK, on a global level, I'm like, you are privileged. Even if you're born, even if you're born into crap circumstances in California, okay, you are still significantly better off. Like, okay, if you're like literally homeless, maybe not. But if you've got like a roof over your head and you do have food, however it's coming from, whatever, I'm like, you're still, you're actually better off than like 90, 95% of the world, man. And I, I, I think, I don't know, maybe because not everybody travels and not everyone has this global perspective. But it's like when you see it and when you go and you do see like real, true, like brutal, brutal poverty and you're just like, wow, you know, it's like humbling. You're just, wow, I'm not going to complain about I'm not going to complain about my life ever, <laughs> ever again. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sitting here with like we're, we're sitting here talking like over this magic Skype thing. We've got HD webcams. We're here like we're going to we got like, you know, how much your phone costs. you got like a laptop there heating. I'm just like, come on, man, like. Like when I catch myself complaining about stuff, I, I always try to just nip it in the bud and just put some perspective on it and be like, Zuby, shut up, man. Like, what are you, what are you like your, your little problem in the grand scheme of the world is like, come on, dude, would 99% of people happily trade with you? Yeah. Okay. So shut up. I wanted to talk a little bit more about your, your story and your work. So you spent like two months, you know, you, you, you did, you did something silly, paid the cost and then. Tell us about the period of going from that to your now level of sustainable success. How did you do that? About, so, so I, I guess, yeah. So let's see. So I got out of jail. I got, I started training. I started working in gym 2009. So, I mean, it took a while. Like I, I've told this people, like it, you know, took, you know, with, there's a cliche, like it takes 20 years to become overnight success. Um, but it took, it was basically like a full decade of stacking up skills. When I started working as a personal trainer, I was very maniacal in that I didn't focus on doing anything else but personal training. So even when I sort of lost my enthusiasm for it at times, and I, I wasn't passionate per se, I still kept doing it because I wanted to improve. I always had this belief in mastery. So 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, yeah, I had, I had certain up and down years. I had times where I had to quit my job um, because I didn't want to get fired, uh, because I was basically being highly professional and I, I skimmed off like extra sessions. Uh, I remember like one company I was working at, you know, so I, I, I self-sabotaged quite a few times. I remember in 2014, 2015, I basically sort of went broke because I was had irresponsible spending habits. And I, I mean, I made, I made my very much fair share of mistakes multiple, multiple, multiple times, mm-hmm. but I always had the mindset still like you can like, keep getting better, keep improving, keep getting better. And another thing too, I was always very observant of everything I was doing. I watched other people and what their businesses were. I, I studied the I studied the systems of the companies that I worked for. Uh, I sort of I kept sort of like running case studies of people that I saw coming up. Were you working for specific gyms or for personal yeah. training companies? Oh no, so I worked for so I worked for a few gyms. I worked for a few gyms like chain gyms, and then I had periods of time where I was basically independent. And then I had like a, my last gym job I had. I was working at a, a private gym or an independent gym in 2016. And then I basically went broke working at that one because I was getting vastly underpaid. And then that was sort of like my moment where I realized, okay, I'm broke. I'm 27. Um, my ex-girlfriend at the time totally sort of gave me a wake-up call where it's like, what are you doing with yourself? Uh, I'm like, you're not going to ever be able to have a family, support yourself. Like, you're going to be like, you're an adult male. And she was right. 
so the, you know, 2016 was sort of like my moment, so to speak, where I decided, you know what, I'm going to take everything I've learned the past seven years. I'm going to work for myself. I know how to train. I know how to speak. I'm an expert on the body. I'm an expert on health, nutrition, fitness. I've, I've had thousands upon thousands of hours of conversations with people. I can speak the human experience, uh, you know, psychology, you know, psychosomatics. Yeah, I have, all, I have all these areas that I have skill slash, you know, talent and whatever you want to call it. If I put them all together, I think I have a very potent combination. Mm-hmm. And so I, I use Twitter as a platform because, one, it was just more interesting to me than Facebook. Um, and I was able to write sort of like at will constantly. Like, you know, Facebook, if you're on, I'm on Facebook anymore. Facebook, you write one or two posts a day. If you do three posts, it's like too much posting. Twitter, you can tweet a hundred times a day, and it's and people love it. And the thing with Twitter too is as well, people get on Twitter because they like to read. Twitter, you know, it might not seem like it, but Twitter is a very smart platform. It's people that are readers, mm. and so they're going to consume information. If you put and if you put out valuable information, you can build a reputation network fairly quickly, um, and you really connect with your audience that way. Yeah. So, and plus, you know, unlike a um, you know, unlike even a website where you could be writing blog articles for a year and no one reads it on Twitter. If you tweet and you keep tweeting and you, like you said, you microblog, you know, within a year you can be getting the equivalent of essentially like millions of page views. What I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in knowing the, the details of kind of going from, going from zero, zero to one, shall we say. Yeah. So when you didn't have an audience, yeah. How mm-hmm. did you get that traction? How do you grow those first thousand 500, 1,000, 2,000 followers starting from nothing. Did you have a specific tweet, tweets or threads that went viral or hashtags? What, what did you do? So in 2015, when I started tweeting, um, so I mean, to give context, so in 2015, I'd been writing since, I started writing in 2012, started writing professionally, I guess you'd say in 2013. So I had, I had a few years of writing experience and the website I was writing for, for at the time, LeafTS, I knew how to write to be read, which most people do not have an aptitude for, where you can write something and it reads well. Being able to write is being able to write in such a way that when people read it, it aligns with their own thinking and their own flow of conscience. So if you're a writer and you want to write in such a way that people are going to take to what you read, you have to know how people think. And mm-hmm. I, had, I had learned that skill, I had learned that aptitude through my years of training clients. So when I started tweeting, I would just, you know, essentially keep everything very quotable, very punchy. I used a lot of idioms. It was, my tweets were structured uh, in such a way that if you read them, you'd remember them. And it was something that you could retweet. And I I mean, like, was there any one tweet that like made it for me? I don't think there was. I I mean, I can remember having like 400 followers, but I would tweet sort of like in these massive storms where I'd go like 20 tweets in a row. I did that a lot. So I started doing that, and the thing that helped originally was my uh, my buddy Mike. He retweeted a few of my tweets, and he had a bigger following than myself at the time. I mean, he has like what five hundred thousand followers now. Oh, uh, Cernovich. Yeah, Cernovich. At, at the okay, time, yeah. I, I remember when he had twenty thousand. Mm-hmm. But you know, if a bigger account retweets you, you get traction that way. So it just it slowly kept building, and I, I remember Mike sending me a message on Facebook of all places. This is hysterical to me, but I was at like at seven hundred followers on Twitter, and he's like. Oh, your Twitter account's really growing. That, that's good. I'm like, this, this is 700 followers. You know, now obviously it's it, it multiplied so many times. Uh, and the other thing too with Twitter, because you you're writing it for such a public forum, you quickly get a sense of what styles of writing don't work and what do. So like, Twitter is very much like an emotional rhetoric platform. If you write very dry, very technical, as I call it, people are not going to enjoy it. 
if you can take one or two sentences and tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end, and it has a point or a lesson to it, people remember that. So I just I kept honing that style over time. And it actually made me a better writer because you only have so many words. Would you say that for these reasons, Twitter is your preferred social media platform still? Yeah, 100%. Okay. And, and the other factor, too, the, re- the reason I liked it is on a simple level. I, I love to write. So I always viewed it as practice. It wasn't something that I felt like it was. You know, Twitter suited my aptitudes and personality that way. Yeah, if someone, if you're not a writer and like writing is really difficult, I could see where Twitter would not make any sense. And, and plus the nature of the platform, too, it's super fast. It you is, have to yeah. Be- Loves to consume information. <laughs> no, I I love Twitter myself. I mean, I'm on I'm on all the platforms. I have this love hate relationship with it. Like the amount of the amount of stupidity and nonsense that I see on it, even if I don't follow stupid people, sometimes hurts my brain and makes yeah. me question humanity. But um, like <laughs> I've also connected with you know lots of great people such as yourself. It's mm-hmm. really interesting to, like you said, um, get that insight into people's brains. Yeah. You know, just just see how. So many people I've spoken to on this podcast, I felt like, like this is our first time talking, but I kind of feel like I already know you. Yeah. I've, I've read so many of your tweets and followed you for a while. So it's like, I think I know some of your literally down to, you know, like your beliefs, what you're interested in, the way you view the world, whatever. So it's interesting because you can find like-minded people, even if they're doing something that might seem quite different to what mm-hmm. you're doing. That's one reason I wanted to do this podcast and I wanted to make it very open. So rather than making it a purely like music based podcast or something like that. I was like, no, I already do music. I'm interested in all these other ideas and Mm. all these other things. So why don't I just do a podcast where like, okay, I can be the core of it, but I'll talk to, I'll talk to personal trainers, musicians, business people, um, entrepreneurs, singers, like whatever, like anyone doing something interesting, you know, political commentators, I'd, I'd get, I'd get politicians on here. Like anyone who's just got an interesting perspective. There's a very similar thread between everybody. Yeah, there's like a similar thread. So it's like everyone's really different, but there's this there's this thread and a sort of belief system and story that all these people subscribe to. It's like everyone has a is on a similar wavelength, even though they're doing different things. I think it's also the authenticity, because I think you can um, someone could put on a persona for a while, but you know if you follow someone for a, a while. And especially if they're 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 tweeting frequently, then you can tell who's authentic, and you can tell who is saying stuff just to get whatever reaction or to virtue signal or to make themselves look a certain way. Like c- celebrities do this all the time. Like so many so many celebrity accounts just make my eyes roll because I'm just like, do you even believe the stuff you're <laughs> tweeting? You know what I mean? It's like some some of it is so it's weird because people eat it up. Like to me, it's so transparent and obvious, like yeah. what, what you're doing here. Like some, especially when they hijack like news. So some news incident will happen and they'll like hijack it to like put themselves on this pedestal to be looked at. And I'm just like, am I the only one who's seeing what they're doing? <laughs> like like they, don't, they don't, they don't care. They, they don't care about what happened here. They're just trying to use this as, oh, look at me. Look at how, uh, how virtuous I am. Look at how moral I, you know, and I'm just like, good grief, like. <laughs> there are certain accounts I've seen. Like, there's one that just annoyed me recently. It was a guy, Chris Evans, that actor who plays Captain America. Okay, yeah, yeah. I crack up at his, his tweeting sometimes because it sounds like it was written by like Joseph, <laughs> like Joseph Gobble's office of propaganda. <laughs> like, there's no way in God's earth you talk. One, there's no way in God's earth you talk that way. It's, it's so like hyper, not even hyper partisan, but this sort of like, I don't know. I don't even remember what the tweet was. It was like this: "Woe is me. Woe is us." 
you know, if only we could all be better people. Um, like just such like a party line position. And like, and then the count does that all the time. Like, do you really write all that? Yeah. And I'm like, again, like you're an actor. Like I, I've worked with actors. I worked in Hollywood. And I mean, to speak from experience, actors are the most insecure, degenerate, just <laughs> not role model people that you'd ever want to really hear their opinions about anything that have to do with human goodness. Mm. Uh, like you don't like Hollywood's a, a horrific place. Like I could, I could tell you story after story. I, I've heard a lot. Yeah. So I mean, so, so like when I, so when I see especially these people, especially the actors in this, you know, these Hollywood positions of, you know, like this, uh, you know, like demigod moralization, you know, to I guess they're they're fans and uh, it, it just the hypocrisy just is staggering. Yeah, and then I wonder if they really take themselves seriously. Like, I, I wonder. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they do. I don't like to use the term red pill because it's kind of overplayed now. It's become too, um, it's become too overused. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I think it's interesting because I, I, I don't think that there's like a red pill. I think there's like a bunch of them in different aspects of life. I think there's like a, I think there's like a fitness red pill. I think there's a political red pill. I think there's just like a worldview red pill i think there's like a, a money and business red pill do you know what i mean it's like and people people tend to take one and then like the rest of the dominoes kind of tend to collapse right so if you've got someone who understands nutrition and health and fitness at like a certain level quite often that will lead to like other breakthroughs you know what i mean or someone might have a, a breakthrough when it comes to male female relationships and then that quickly leads to like a political breakthrough and like a massive distrust of media. And like, you yeah. know, it's like that. they, they kind of go down this this rabbit hole of just like, uh, I think for men, a lot of it, hap- I think a lot of it does start with women. Like, I think a lot yeah. of men, a lot of men want to understand women, understand dating, understand how to be more attractive or just how the whole thing works, how the attraction works. And I think that's kind of the first one people tend to take. And then after a few after a little while people tend to like oh okay well what about fitness mm-hmm. oh okay oh you know because the blue pill like i'd say like the blue pill is you know believing in all the supplements are working and believing that all those massive and ripped guys you see like none of them are on steroids all the stuff i believe when i was like 16 okay or all the all the stuff in the magazine yeah just do it by the magazine and i'm gonna look like this guy and then he, and then you're like ah okay like these guys are all on all this stuff. You leave yourself to question things. Yeah, yeah. But the thing, like the, the more you question, like what you were told, you know, what, like what they say, like this, like you said, it has this domino effect where it's like, okay, well, you know, what else was I misled on? Yeah. You know, the, the, the women is always the big one, like you said, for men, because like I, I've realized this because I, 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 I get asked this question, like when when were you blue pill, red pill? I'm like, I never thought of myself as either of those ways because I didn't hear the I didn't hear the term red pill, blue pill, really used in that kind of context to like two years ago but i like when i grew up because i was dancing especially in high school i was around women who are around other women so like i was sort of like the silent observer of how they actually acted behaved and i mean did i have certain beliefs that were like very disney prince yeah because you want girls to like you you want a girl to, you know like there's that, there's that stuff but then i also saw how women actually acted so i didn't quite i didn't i didn't have this I don't know this idealized conceptualization that some men have. And at the same time, too, because I saw how women actually acted, I didn't put them in that same kind of pedestal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, at times, did I with certain things, perhaps? But yeah, again, this like this weird sort of like, like this Disney prince mentality that men have. It took me a long time, like it, really almost like to last year to realize like guys, they, they really believe that. Yeah. 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 They really believe that they are if they are good nice guys and if they get female validation like that is sort of the god of their existence 
Yeah. yeah, and that was this, that was interesting to me. I'm like, wow, men really do think that way. Uh, but then when, when you remove that from you know from men, when they when they have that sort of like veil lifted, the, when the veil's gone, you're like, oh wow, like I, you know, everything I was told was a lie. <laughs> you see how it causes a sort of angry break with reality. It's like, well, what else was I lied about? Because you know, the, for men, the motivation to get female approval ties into so many different areas of their life. So you know, it starts out here, but then from one thing comes from ten thousand things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then everything else that starts to crack and crumble, then. Yeah, you, then you end up with this place where you know maybe you go down your own rabbit hole where you're keto, intermittent fasting, um, you know, going your own way. I, I don't, I don't know, yeah. but it is, it is interesting to see. It is interesting to see, and then, and then you realize too, like there is a narrative of this. Uh, there is a narrative of sort of illusion where, yeah, most of probably what you believe about most things. I told people this, like ninety percent, percent of your thoughts are not your own. They were put into you by something else. Hmm. Um, you know, if, if you were asked to support them, give your reasons, explain them. Uh, you know, in an argument, a thesis, you'd have no real explanation at all. It's things that you are told because of them, they, an authority figure. That's what everyone says, does. You know, like you're, you know, how much of you is actually real? Probably very yeah. little. Yeah, no, it's it's very true. And you can, and you can see when it's happening in real time. Because I think it causes like almost physical pain for people, right? When, they, when there's that, you know, you have some people who just resist so hard that, you know, some people it's like, okay, I'm not going to. I'm not going to bother trying to convince you of this thing because you'll be ready when you're ready. For example, um, after watching Hoaxed that we were talking about earlier, I watched it a couple nights ago and I tweeted something out about it. And um, I mentioned something about like, I've known the media is biased for a long time, but I didn't realize that it went quite this far. You know what I mean? And then someone was, um, someone replied saying that the media is not biased. And I was like, Dude, are you serious? Do you really do you I was like, do you really not think that certain large media organizations don't have I'm not I'm not saying that they're lying even. I'm just saying do you you don't believe that they have like a strong bias? You don't think CNN has a strong bias? You don't think Fox News has a strong bias? Like really? You don't think Vox has a strong bias? And then they were like, Yeah, you have no evidence of that. And I was like, I was I, I was literally like, I'm not gonna have this conversation because if if I need to explain to you, if I need to explain this to you, like if you can't just see it then you're like, you're not ready to, <laughs> you're not ready to see it because it's, it's not subtle. It's like very obvious. Uh, well, I, I, that, that's a question I found interesting to people because I've seen people use that for things that I think are very obvious. Like things you think are obvious, like the, the media is biased. Oh, no, they're not. Where's your evidence? I'm like, where's your evidence for why you believe they're not? Hmm. I'm like, you're, you're, so I'm giving you a position that bias exists or that things are presented in a way that is not truthful. And then you want me to present evidence to you because you don't believe what that you don't believe that bias exists that you don't believe that things can be untrue yeah is there any evidence i could really give you that would ever change your mind or are you just looking for ideological reinforcement because hmm. i very rarely have ever seen anybody change their mind when given a counter argument what it does is it yeah. give me your evidence and i'll tell you why your evidence is wrong and while and why you're biased and what you're seeing is incorrect because my paradigm is the right one if only you could see it my way like yeah. you don't want evidence you just want to be assured that you're right yeah yeah no i mean pe people dig in i mean sometimes you can change minds i've certainly i've certainly changed the minds on of a lot of people on a lot of things and i think that comes to people view me as a very opinionated person and i am but any strong opinions i hold i hold because i've really thought about them like i've, I've like re anything I, I feel strongly on like i've really thought about it i've thought about the counter arguments I've like debated it internally with myself for like 
normally years. <laughs> so lots of stuff I have no opinion on because I'm just like, I haven't done the research. I haven't thought about it. I have no opinion. Okay. If someone asks me about the, what do I think of the conflicts between Israel and Palestine? I don't know. Like I haven't, I haven't looked at it in enough detail. I haven't thought about it. I, I don't know. I don't have an opinion. Yeah. If it's like certain other issues, then it's like, no, I've like really, really thought about this one. This is why I have my position. If someone wants to attack it, I can happily defend it. But as you were saying, because people just get their ideas from people's ideas often aren't their own ideas. They just take their friend's position or their parents' position or their favorite political party's position or whatever, and they just kind of run with it. And then when you actually challenge them, they they fall apart really quickly because they don't actually they haven't thought about it themselves. No. So if you're like, oh well, what about what about this? Oh, but what about that? And either they tend to just get angry and call you something or sometimes you know it's a, it's a little bit rare but sometimes they are like oh, you're right <laughs> you know i have had that happen as well where someone's like oh, to be fair like you, and you can see that no one's ever challenged them on it before you know like no one's ever challenged them on it before so i remember like i had someone you know someone who i know and he was like he thought communism is a, a decent idea okay <laughs> i mean it, there's there's thousands of people there's millions of people who do right so i was explaining to him why it doesn't work and why it falls apart why why it kills people like why it's always failed i was kind of explaining it to it just like from a rational and economic perspective and in terms of human incentives and just what actually happens in reality and yeah i mean he, he switched on that one quite quickly he was like yeah, okay I've, I've never people take like the very surface level of it and they're like oh that sounds good like everyone gets enough okay that, that sounds good but like they don't think about the implications you know what i mean Nope, not at all. <laughs> I don't know. I, my, my, yeah, I mean, I, again, I find members are that way where I mean, it kills me. Like, they're just, they're, they have positions, and like, I'll ask them, like, well, well how'd you think that? Yeah, I mean, it's not even like, a, it's not even an It's like, well, you think that? And they really don't have any reasons why they think that. It's just like, well, you know, this, that. I'm like, well, what about this? <laughs> uh, 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 I'm like, do you, do you have any real evidence for this? It's just, it's just an idea that sounded good to you. Yeah. But like you realize, like again, most people like how they get their ideas. It's things that sound good. Don't eat carbs after six p.m. Yeah, I would just. I mean, look, look, <laughs> so like, like are the, I mean, fitness is always the basic one. Because it's just like stuff where I'll get asked, like, what do you think? Like, is it true? Like, that low reps are for bulking, high reps are for toning. I'm like, <laughs> like you know, I how how did you come? Like, this is always my question. I'm like, let's <laughs> back up ten steps, and I want you to explain to me. All the individual. I want to explain all the mental processes that led you to thinking that is true in the first place. How did that start? What's the origin point? And then, like, I've always asked clients to do that. I'm like, let's, like that's always my phrase. Like, let's back up ten steps. So, what do you think toning means? Um, it means not building bulky muscle. I'm like, okay, what do you mean bulky muscle? Like bigger muscle? Like, how do you think muscle building works? Uh, you, like, and then, like, eventually, you get to a point where, like, do you know anything about anything? <laughs> No, like I've always, I've told, I've told clients, especially with women, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you have to get people to a point where they sort of admit their ignorance from like everything you think is stupid and wrong. <laughs> you don't actually know anything. You're just literally saying a statement yeah. that you have emotion attached to for no real reason. Yeah. No, so some, some of the fitness ones are hilarious. Like I remember, um, someone say, yeah, not that long ago saying something about like, yeah, you know, I, I've heard that. Yeah. If you eat. If you eat carbs after 6 p.m., then yeah, it turns into fat and this and that. And 
I was just like, like I, I kind of did what you did. I was like, okay, like let's talk, let's think through this one. <laughs> like, why, why do you like, think that? How, how does your firstly, how does your body know? Okay, like your body might know what time it is to some degree. Like you've got a circadian rhythm, but like, why would your digestive system process rice differently at six fifteen p.m. versus five thirty p.m.? Does that does that sound sensible? And they're like um i, I guess not <laughs> you just and you just got to go there and you're like yeah like where did you hear that from you know it's just it's yeah. weird how the, and these myths just get they get perpetuated like there's so many you know I've, I've been training since i was a teenager and there were there were so many stupid things so many stupid things that i used to like just buy you know just, just buy into completely even the whole like oh you have to you know i used to think that you'd go catabolic if you didn't eat for two hours <laughs> And like I, I look back on that now and I'm just like, oh my gosh, like how could like it again, it just doesn't it doesn't even make sense because you're just like it takes longer than that to di digest a meal. So why would your body start eating up your muscle? Yeah, well, well you well, you realize when you study the body is that like it's a complex system. And so like these ideas that like it's the idea that like it's single factor, like like here's saying like, like carbs after like a certain hour, your your body is more insulin sensitive in the morning than it is at night. Like that's true. You know, so like, okay, that's true. Like, can you dysregulate appetite if you eat a lot of sugar later on? Like you can, but like, but how, then, but then like, how do you ultimately gain weight though? I'm like gaining weight ultimately is like, it's, it's a calorie excess. Like if you're creating a calorie excess, like, yeah, you're going to gain weight. Well, what if I eat later? I'm like, if you eat later and you're not overeating, like that's not really an issue. So like it's, everything's very contextual, mm. but then that's the thing. Like people, like they, people do not have a sense of context. They want to assume that everything's either like a or it's B. Yeah. It's either black or it's white. Which one is it? I'm like, it's not any of those things. It's like, it's a context-based, multi-factor, complex, polycausal system. There are very few things in life where you can narrow it down to this choice or that choice. Yeah. I'm like, they're, they're, at times, yeah, at times. But again, like in context, in context, you can figure that out. But with health, if you're trying to like make health decisions that way, well, what is it? What's like, what's the best rep range? I'm like, for what? <laughs> best rep range for what? For I don't know. I'm like, okay, what's the best breakfast for what? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just like, what's what's a good foodie? A good what? What does it even mean? <laughs> good food for what? Like, I, this one, this one always killed me. Was the uh, I just crack up. Uh, I, I don't know how this exists. I mean, I know how, but if you so, if, is it true that if you eat more than thirty grams of protein, your body doesn't digest it? I'm like, oh gosh, I used to believe that. I used to believe that that the human body in like a billion years of evolution evolved <laughs> there that it has a literal metric marker <laughs> in your stomach where it's like all right you had 31 grams of protein now i'm not going to digest anything anymore and like that, that 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 makes no how would you how would anything survive like it just it makes no sense when i when i used to get all my info from muscle and fitness and flex when i was 16 i used to panic when i hadn't eaten for like three hours mm-hmm like I used, I used to like even if I wasn't hungry, <laughs> yeah. even if I could still feel food in my stomach, I'd be like, "Crap, I'm going catabolic." <laughs> yep. I'd, be, I'd be like running, trying to like make a shake, <laughs> have a yeah, tuna sandwich. Yeah. I was like, "Dude, no wonder I weighed more when I was 16 than I weigh now." Like I was just eating all the friggin' time. I I don't know if if you don't eat, your metabolism breaks or yeah. yeah the the, the other one that I just cracked up about slows down after two hours. Another <laughs> yeah, one I always crack up about like if you slow down your metabolism, then you just start storing more fat. I'm like. <laughs> You go into starvation like, mode. Yeah, if, if, you, if you don't eat, then you go into starvation mode. So I'm like, if you're not eating food, 
you're storing fat from not eating. That, that, <laughs> so if, if I don't put gas in my car, my car burns more gas when it's on empty because that, that makes no sense at all. But, but starvation mode, bro. Starvation I, mode after four hours. <laughs> I, I don't know how we made this far, honestly. Like, I, I don't know how we made this far. I have no idea. I've had people I like message you. me. I've had people message me asking if fruit is healthy, and then all the and then all the supplement stuff. Gosh, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Like everybody, people trying to you got people spending like two hundred, two hundred pounds, three hundred dollars a month on just all these bullcrap supplements that don't do anything. Like literally, literally, like just just piles of powders and pills, and you're just like, dude, like buy food. With so many things, once you attach the word industry to them, you just invite a whole bunch of BS, right? So like, I love fitness, the fitness industry, I have like a lot of issues with, right? Yeah. I love, I love uh, music, but the music industry, I've got, I've got a lot of issues with. Food is great. The food industry, like, as soon as you add the word industry to stuff, you just invite a whole bunch of like snake oil salesmen and like just shady individuals and businesses. That's like the bikini girl industry, like on, on Instagram. They're like, oh, oh. <laughs> um, I mean, like the girls are hot, like they're bangable. Like, yeah, they're hot girls. They're hot girls. Yeah. Uh, but like, I just, I crack up because like even my girl follows like a few of them and like, I'll watch their videos and it's just like, it's just, it's just gratuitous sexual advertising. <laughs> it's gratuitous sexual advertising. Um, like I'll watch these girls routines, their workouts. And, and I mean, it's just funny to me because I, I've trained female clients for years. Like I specialize in training women mm-hmm. and all, all my women, like, are there differences you know, between men and women and their physiques? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, there are certain things you have to customize, modify. Women have different proportions than men. You know, that said, are, are like the exercises different? No. If you're a girl, you want to build a butt, you're going to deadlift, squat, probably do a lot of lunges. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's just it's certain basic elements that everybody does. Like, you know, the, the exercise is genderless that way. Like, it's very universal. If you want to build, uh, back muscles, guess what? You got to do rows and pulps and chin-ups and all that. Like, it doesn't change. You want to build legs? Like what I just said. But I'll watch these routines, like these these wacky exercises these chicks set up. Um, or just like everything's like very cardiovascular-ish, like super gimmicky. And like they're doing like the whole, all the videos are in bikinis. Um, full, and then, make, full makeup. Yeah, full, full makeup on. And they, yeah, I'm like, I'll, I'll, I've watched, I'll watch the video sometimes. Like, or she'll show me like, what do you think of this girl? I'm like, I, I basically know what this girl's nipples look like. I know what her, I know, I know, I basically know what her labia look like, okay, because she's in like a D-string bikini, and, you know, like kickbacks or whatever the heck with bands, and I'm like, and this is what, like for her forty nine ninety nine booty program, but she's got a gazillion thousand likes and a million followers, and yeah. half of that's probably, you know, men, they're using her for, you know, masturbation inspiration. Oh, yeah. But Some like, of it, lots of, I, I tweeted this the other day, man, lots of it is just, it's just softcore porn that people don't want to admit. I just don't follow these girls on Instagram. One, because I have a girlfriend. And two, because I, I had one time where like I was following a couple and like, you know, when you open Instagram and, you know, you've just got like a first post in your face. <laughs> I was like, I was like in a shopping mall or something. And, like, you know, I was in a position where like other people could kind of see my screen. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and like, I think they must have thought I literally was like on some porn site or something because I was just like, good freaking grief. Like, like you just popped up, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, like clothes. I was like, wow. And then then, then I looked even more guilty because I was like, dude, like I thought that was like a fitness profile. (laughs) But we we could talk for hours. But uh, let let the people know where they can find you. 
Um, yeah, so all listeners, so easiest place to find me, tw- so Twitter, obviously, um, A-J-A underscore Cortez, C-O-R-T-E-S. And then my website is Cortez, C-O-R-T-E-S site. And then I, I, the one thing I, I would pitch, um, I write a daily newsletter where I get super deep into every kind of red pill topic, health topic, fitness topic, you know, meta level, political, social commentary, um, what I'm doing with my life. But if you want to get a newsletter and like legitimately like learn some stuff and be entertained, like get on the newsletter. Um, and that's the best place to reach me too. If you have questions about anything you think I could help you with. So th- those two places, Twitter and the newsletter. Awesome. Alexander. Great to have you on the show, bro. Keep Likewise. Killing Keep killing it. Talk again, brother. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.